Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with some choice pieces of audio that have come my way this week. In a moment, the artist Ruby Wallace is here to take us up to Monto, Monto. And later on, I'll be talking to Professor Ashling Kelleher about seasons of AI and cycles of hype. And Eve B. Golden has a radio poem about a Californian winter. But we begin on the streets of Dublin with a key question. Do you hunker down once it gets dark or light out to explore the shift between daytime bustle and nighttime edge? To mark Bridget's big day, Dublin City Council organised a series of walking tours through the capital. Women walked the city. As part of the series, artist Ruby Wallace guided a group of women on a nighttime walk around what was once known as the Monto and called Night Town by James Joyce to reimagine the city at night through a feminist lens. Culture files Louise Williams brought her microphone for a Dublin derive. Hi, welcome. I'm Ruby Wallace, and um, we're just talking about apparently Bridget used to whistle to signal to others in the night where she was. So, um, which is kind of compelling and interesting in terms of night walking. So, we're just gathering a few playful whistles with a kind of a sense of what it's like to feel very confident about taking up space and whistling confidently. Maybe everybody knows a little bit about the flaneur already. Um, He's usually a a male figure and a figure of leisure who idles and is free to roam around the city at his leisure and look upon things. He's usually quite an observer as well maybe a bit of a dandy, wandering about, taking his leisure. So there wasn't actually a verb of flanous. There's no verb in the French dictionary to flanous, the idea of actually flanousing. So what is it to flanous as a female? (laughs) (laughs) Was that actually them whistling? I thought that was... And then when you think about it, it's not very traditional for women to whistle and take up space and be a whistler and a dandy and very confident about the way that you move around. Mm-hmm. Uh, whistle for Bridget as well. That's what we're celebrating, and it's also the full moon. It's the Rowan full moon this evening. And then I've got a map for everybody, so we're going to walk around and kind of... It's a, basically around the re- old red light district area and then end up at the docks. So a few kind of historical points to the walk, but also I want you to just explore this in an experiential way. So there's a few layers slower than, than what you expected? Something interesting about the pace, the, yeah. the, the pace that we're, that we're taking, isn't it's it? It's nice, actually, isn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah. I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is slow. You know, it's interesting. But. Do you think it's because there's quite a few of us that we're kind of more comfortable walking maybe, at a maybe leisure? Maybe, also, maybe it may, me, to me, I, I'm feeling very aware of what's behind me or what's underneath me, or yeah. that's why I'm walking slowly, maybe. Yeah. I started walking at night because I was at home with a small child and I started making photographs and posting them up. But then I noticed something else which I wasn't really expecting and that was the kind of physical feelings that were arising through being out on my own at night. And that was heart palpitations, palms sweating, needing to move in the narrow spaces quickly. Whether logical or not, this is what was happening and I realised that there was a lot of fear as well. Um, and then there were the high-profile cases of Sarah Averard, Ashley Murphy... 
um, Sabina Nessa, and that kind of brought it home that it was dangerous and talking to a lot of friends and women that I, that I um, know, we kind of realised that, of course, there's never a time where you feel really safe when you're walking. You're always assessing everything. Hey, we're just going to have a check-in here, see how everyone's doing. Yeah, I used to cycle down a lot of those streets before when I lived out in East Wall and I've never, like, walked down them, like, slowly like that, it's like, paying attention to things. It's a different experience. It's much easier to walk down those streets in a group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in a group you so feel very protected, don't you? Yeah. 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 It's true. Oh, yeah. Hello. Hi. Hi. What's all this about? Oh, gosh, yeah, it's top secret, can't tell you. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whistling. <laughs> was that actually so them whistling? I thought that was. No, the carry on up towards the, the doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different times with different people, just that you just. I just 90% more at ease than you could possibly be if you were on your own or even in a couple. Do you know, that there was a sense that there's a community of us kind of minding each other, do you know? So you could stop and you could focus on something and take your mind off needing to be alert, do you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I did find myself, like, kind of watching the edge of the group a bit, you know, like just keeping an eye out, you know. I was walking around at night, I was on my way to something by myself recently and I hated it I just because I don't I wouldn't really be walking around there much anyway and there were just so many men down so many alleys and I really didn't like it and so when I saw that this event was starting around the same place like it's gonna be so interesting to be there but like with a group of women and see how it feels and obviously felt so much safer and even when there were men around I was like they're hardly gonna even though that one guy did come up to us (laughs) it's like they're hardly gonna approach a big group of women and start Saying stuff. Yeah, he's brilliant. <laughs> well, and you're, you're right, it was like a performance. You know, they yeah. came over and they were like, oh, what's yeah. happening? And uh, oh, it was just somebody, whoever did that, it just flipped it around so quickly. It was just very funny. They like, don't bother us. Yeah. <laughs> they were intrigued. What were we doing? <laughs> but do you think he was a little bit afraid of us when he saw it was only women? I just wonder if he wasn't a little bit afraid of our power. Well, he almost gave us permission then. He was like, all right, okay. Yeah. Once he'd kind of got a little sense of us yeah Yeah. (laughs) artist ruby wallace and fellow flaneurs there whistling through the streets of dublin as part of women walk the city and the reporter was louise williams
Attica Quartet there with Caroline Shaw because Grammys aren't just for Beyoncé. Now, where are we on the hype cycle with AI, and indeed with hype cycles? Since the launch of the chatty AI ChatGTP, there's been a storm of attempts to claim new territories for chatty AIs, not to mention AIs that are good at drawing, doing journalism, and even making music, with the help of some human prompting. But is the sheer number of these claims really the interesting part of the story? According to our tech soothsayer Ashling Kelleher, some answers might come in the form of business advice provided in a regularly published graph called the Gartner Hype Cycle for Emerging Technologies, which some have called the hero's journey of new technologies, as Ashling Kelleher explained. I suppose at this stage um, we're out of the AI winter, aren't we? The, the AI winter is a kind of uh, a longer winter than we're used to dealing with. Tell, tell us what the AI winter is, because what we want to kind of talk about in, in general is how people receive technologies and how they appreciate them. And, and AI has just come out of a winter. Yes, and the groundhog did not see its shadow. So I think that's where we are. Or it didn't die like it has done other years. Um Possibly we're out of the AI winter, but it's important to recognise that with every AI winter comes another AI winter. So we'll be we'll be heading there again. But there is a lot of excitement right now about uh, artificial intelligence and particularly with the idea of you can now use it to generate any type of media. It can be sound, it can be audio, it can be you can write a book with it. Um, you can use it as a kind of a, an assistant view in your dating life to do all the initial communications because you're just so busy doing something else um there's a, a lot of there's a lot of hyper discussion about it i think right now and uh, i think it needs a bit of grounding there is a good visual shorthand in some ways for thinking about the introduction of emerging technologies and how people talk about them and how they actually come to fruition. And so that's with the uh, Gartner hype cycles. So Gartner is a, a research analysis and consultancy company. It's huge and it's been around for since like 1979 or so. So starting in the mid 90s, they started producing one particular methodology that the public really jumped onto. So this idea of a hype cycle. So what they were really looking at is emergent technologies. Not, you know, in the 90s, this could be that we're going to use tidal power or cold fusion or the idea of, you know, personal computers that are networked. You know, this is all kind of pre the big take growth in, in cell phones. 
So they were coming out with these ideas to help companies, particularly, develop new strategies to think about where they're going to put their research and development money and to think about the different types of um, customers that they may be interested in engaging with new technologies. So this cycle essentially is a combination of two equations. One which is about expectations, so very human-centred kind of idea of like, what are people's expectations? What are they talking about? What is their social contagion about it or public enthusiasm? And then there's a second equation, which is a more typical S-curve. So it's an S-curve of like how a technology matures, how something kind of develops within within an industrial framework. So what Gartner does is basically mash those together in a kind of a little bit of an opaque way and uses some very beautiful labeling naming approaches so we start out with probably what we're at right now with all this ai hype and i think uh, it does dawn on me that maybe it's the ai that is just generate the ai says to itself generate hype and so it's generating all these press releases and it just can't stop now it's got into this like hyping it up even more it seems beyond human capability to be generating as many words uh, about how great ai is and how important it is at the moment so i think you might be onto something yeah but i think what we have on the gartner hype cycle is it begins right this is the wonderful place where the x and the y axis begin with the idea of what they call an innovation trigger So this is where, where does this thing come from? All of a sudden we're talking about cloud computing or digital twins or the metaverse, if that's your thing. Um, And then as people get very, very excited about it and begin to talk about it a lot and begin to maybe then, you know, in their wild enthusiasm, begin to think it's potentially could do things that this technology might not be able to do at all. And that becomes the peak of inflated uh, expectations. So what you get in this graph essentially is this big bell curve and up at the top. And my favorite part after that, after we've reached the peak, is this very quick drop off into the trough of disillusionment and this is where technology dreams go to die so i think for all those of us who might be interested in seeing metaverse beginning to ram itself up the s curve we also have to think of second life and you know tumblr and all these things that we don't use anymore and then anyway after the trough of disillusionment comes the slope of enlightenment when people go oh hold on maybe we were onto something good there we should invest back in that again and develop it and then it gets widely adopted and becomes the plateau of productivity so these are these five innovation stages that Gartner likes to come out with a, a new one every year and looking at emerging trends. I mean, are they describing what's actually happening or are they predicting? Are they just telling us where all these technologies are in their particular hype cycle or are they telling us what's going to happen? As I said before, it's a little opaque because in analysis that's been done, for example, Larry Leifer, who's a professor emeritus from Stanford in mechanical engineering and a real kind of person at the forefront of design thinking and design research strategy, he started with some colleagues taking a bit of a deeper look, both mathematically and empirically, at like how these Gartner hype cycles were were deduced and why they were talked about and they seem to be extremely influential within you know kind of the industrial uh, world of companies and development and also where governments are going to invest in uh, and support and especially in this era now of venture capital venture capitalists and investment companies these types of kind of 
like this is where you should kind of hedge your bets ideas coming out can be extremely influential in whether or not a technology uh, takes off or not and so in one way he was looking at this idea of the kind of the addition of these two equations together because again this is you know proprietary to, to Gartner they're not necessarily going to share their databases or how they actually how their analysts derive this research and, and push it together to develop these kind of forecasts that it doesn't seem to be particularly mathematical or something that could be recreated or the idea that it's hard to look back over previous years so-called cycles and see how it is that certain technologies or even whole industries move up and down the, the you know either the S plane or the kind of the large bell curve of human expectations how those things are measured whether it's quantifiable in any way is is, is challenging and the idea of how things appear and whether or not technologies you know bifurcate or technologies become multiple entities there's not I guess a, a solid consistency to this so I think that's where the idea of predicting where technology can go, whether it would be you know, better to do it through a kind of a narrative or to some sense of historical analysis even, um, that there's some value to that. But the excitement over seeing these, these graphs every year and they're like kind of fun to look at and to see where things are and what things have disappeared and also what the potential, you know, lifeline of this is like there's you know Facebook or Meta is betting everything on the metaverse but according to last year's hype cycle for 2022 that's still a good 10 years out um so I don't know if we, if we even as a culture have the capacity to feel excited for another 10 years for that in terms of how we're currently receiving AI, when I look at the, the Gartner hype cycle, I see that either side of the peak, you've got um, mass media hype begins and then after the peak, negative press begins. feels like we're having both at exactly the same time. Yeah, and I think that's quite natural. There is this idea of public enthusiasm. You have these early adopters and then there's a kind of a natural human tendency to, you know, the same way that people talk about, oh, God, hipsters or oh, that's so woke, that there is also this idea of cultural resistance to something coming out that seems just too cool or too trendy and people just don't want it. You know, there's this kind of feeling like, oh, I just wanted to be back back in the days when life was simpler. You know, and we weren't so we weren't able to contact people so much. And we only knew a hundred people within the range of as far as our horse could bring us. You know, so if one had a horse. I think there is that 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 is a very natural reaction. Um or not only of resistance but also and well I'll use the technology in a way it was never intended for. So this kind of law of unintended consequences can happen as well quite early on, which can be to the detriment of a potentially promising technology when it becomes really, really evident that straight away people will just use it for deviance. I guess as an academic, the kind of the big kerfuffle in the past ten or twelve days has really been looking at entities like Chat GPT and and AI technologies that are able to create structured text, for example, out of unstructured thoughts or are able to generate wonderful essays for college students, um, you know, about like the, the, the primary themes of love in Shakespeare, for example. So the idea of being able to detect plagiarism when, you know, it's a generative AI that's doing it and, and very interesting ideas coming out that you can begin to play around with AI by deliberately telling it to these kind of text generators to write something that is deliberately obfuscated to avoid a plagiarism detector. So I think this is kind of creating all sorts of um, 
challenges for for folks to think about well what does what is the nature of knowledge then is this going to be akin to when we moved from using log tables to calculators to spreadsheets to what what is the nature of of what it means to know something so i think this challenging of epistemologies will be very interesting um in the next while and to see whether or not this bears fruit in making us smarter or able to use our time better i mean that could be a possibility yeah, I mean, in some ways, you would think the uh, how the AIs will um, reflavor the technologies we use is bigger than the than the hype cycle. That, it, but I wonder, do you feel that every time you're on a, a peak of the hype cycle, does it seem like well, the hype cycle couldn't possibly represent this because it's so revolutionary and uh, and uh, transformative? Yeah, there's a lot of definitely hype around there. And I think that sense of assuming that a type of machine learning that works well in one context will just seamlessly and fluidly move into all sorts of other complex scenarios and situations. So it is the idea of like people got very excited when a computer was able to beat a world master at chess. And you begin to think, yeah, well, chess is a very bounded system. It became very, much more exciting when the AI was able to beat pe- you know, world expert at Go, which is a, a different type of game that is extraordinarily more open-ended than something like chess. So now we're coming to the idea of, well, can machines, can they begin to do a form of moral reasoning? And, and that, I think, is where you're like, that's where the the levels of um, what it means to be a human are somewhat, uh, you know, kind of a little bit far away yet from the AI in terms of can an AI be truly creative? Can an AI appreciate um, the, the human output in terms of art, uh, for example. And so I think there's a lot of hype that is correct in some ways uh, within certain bounded rationalities. I was at a conference recently where somebody said, and I, I hadn't heard this before, that technologists in general, when asked what AI is, they say any technology that doesn't currently exist. It's sort of this grab bag for everything in the perfect future. That's that's wonderful. But then I think, you know, at the same time, I went to see the movie Megan recently. And I think that's mm. a wonderful approximation of AI. I brought my students to see it, my students who are studying um, design fiction and speculative futures. And we had a wonderful time watching this movie and being like, you see, this is what happens with AI. It's about a critique of parenting, you know, that idea of quantified parenting, but also the idea that, of course, it's going to become evil. You know, that's what they all do. Um, or, you know, I think there's a couple of bits in the movie that are very spot on. They're like, of course, there's a huge market for, you know, toys that poop. You know, all kids want you know, semi-autonomous toys that involve poop at some level. But it's when they become these, you know, murdering doll machines. Sorry, spoiler alert. She's not a good one. That that you're like, well, that's really where, yeah, that's where it's going. You realise that, don't you? Because everyone is unethical. <laughs> Ashley and Kelleher there, divining the state of things in state of things, divining. A human wrote that. In a widely shared piece, the online magazine The Cut recently proposed a brand new set of 140-odd etiquette rules for 2023. And have a look at that Culture File pod for a link to that. But one of the great permissions the piece offers is to talk about the weather, presumably in a world where AI-generated Seinfeld parody banned on Twitch over transphobic stand-up bit is a mainstream headline. The weather is a nice, homely, consensusy topic. And when some people talk about the weather, it can be quite special. Take Eve B. Golden in her latest audio poem about a West Coast winter. 
the theater of winter. Lately, I've been delighting in the theater of winter. Where I am, the shifts between acts are very subtle. And I find so much punctuation in the clouds, the color of the mountains, the sounds of the winds. At night, the harmonies are very bold near the highway. Cars shredding the crisp evening like paper as they race on the oldest freeway in Los Angeles. When I open myself at a certain hour, the air passing through the Figueroa Street tunnels on the tails of speeding vehicles sounds like a continuous hum. I sense its music before I drift to sleep. Suddenly, the screech of tires, or perhaps the echo of clashing sirens, bounce off of the apartment building and stir all the nighthawks, like me, pulling us back to the window to make sure everything's alright. I feel the brushing of palms against the east wing of the building. They communicate messages from the clear, moonlit night like Morse code. These percussive strobes halo the Echo Mountains with blue and gray beams. I want to live closer to those mountains. The air in Pasadena will smell like honeysuckle in a few short months. Air that is lifted through a jet stream pumps cool La Nina through North and South America. I imagine an anthropomorphic wind with barrettes in her braids running across the sea from Indonesia to us, arms wide open, grinning from ear to ear. Typically this means drier, windier conditions here, but La Nina has something special in store for me. In the final act of this night, she spreads herself wide, sheathing the moon hangs over the city and rains. Quietly at first, but then waves and waves of spraying water all over funnels of wind, whipping back and forth between windows and cars. Arcs of water erupt in fugues across the Arroyo Seco freeway as cars race home. Everyone here is threatened and alarmed by rain. I know I'm not the only one glued to the window praying she never stops what she's doing, never stops showering over us. Maybe I'm in the minority though. Honestly, it was a bit much, but I loved every second of it. Anyway, in the morning, I walk out to pure ambrosia in the air. It's sweet and cool. The sun is barely grazing the streets, but when it does, it fills the puddles with gold. On the way down to the stairs, I hear singing in the hills, birdsong, and crepuscular rays 
over the verdant hills of Pasadena to my left and Mount Washington behind me. My winter days are made of this. That was Eve B. Golden there with The Theatre of Winter and check out all her previous Culture File radio poems where you get your, and ideally our, podcasts. And while you're in that place of your choice, why not click subscribe and indeed leave us a little review. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more remarkable precipitation next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.